Hey, this is a Hakawati production. Hey, friends! Hope you're having a great day and enjoying every moment. They say the present is all we really have, and that's so true. But every single decision we make in the present affects what the future will look like. My next guest makes a living out of predicting how the rise of technology and how we choose to apply it will change the world order as we know it. He's a geopolitical futurist at the Center for Innovating the Future in Toronto, Canada. But his work transcends all borders. He's just released his third and latest book, and it's called The Age of Killer Robots, which explores, among other things, what might happen as countries start to use robots for warfare. Please welcome Abishur Prakash. Hi, Abishur. It's great to have you on the show. Are we already in the age of killer robots? Because if you think about it, unmanned drones and, and this kind of stuff are already like flying killer robots, right? I definitely think that we have entered the age of killer robots. I don't know if the world realizes that, but a few very switched on defense companies and governments are very aware of that. And I'll just give you one data point. In China, one of the largest defense companies is called Norinco. And a senior executive in that company said that he believes that as early as 2025, battlefields could be free of humans. So if you think about the next conflicts anywhere in the world, there could be a autonomous tanks, autonomous drones, robot soldiers, uh, all powered by AI fighting these battles. And humans may be no longer on the front lines or even present on the battlefield in some cases. That's so weird and creepy. But it also raises questions as to, isn't then, then you're just basically, you know, hurting your opponent or your enemy financially, basically, right? Because you're not taking, you know, any people, any real lives. So how does this is this end up being kind of like a, a, a financial war in some ways? Yeah, I mean, there's there's so many aspects to this. And I think one of the real driving forces for me to write this book was that right now, all the conversations about killer robots or autonomous weapons have to do with what I call the Terminator complex, which is, you know, robots sort of rising up and, and trying to take over the world. And as much as that's a real possibility and as much as that's something that should be discussed, uh, there's other aspects to autonomous weapons too. And part of it has to do with uh, the financial aspect, but a, a lot of it also has to do with the fact that machines will be making decisions and humans will be playing catch up. So what, what I mean by that by this is that right now in the UK, a drone has been developed called Taranis. And Taranis is named after a Celtic god, the god of thunder. Now this drone hasn't been developed to be sold. It's been developed as a concept to show what the next drones can do. And a key part of this drone is that it's capable of operating completely autonomously. It's capable of, you know, doing entire missions without any human input. And so 
in the future, when governments and militaries have this drone at their fingertips, have deployed this drone the way other countries have deployed drones around the world, this drone will be making decisions on its own. Who to attack, how to attack, what to do, who is considered a threat, who is considered an ally. And at that point, for the first time in our in our species' history, we're no longer in control of the military, right? It's algorithms that will be in control. It's algorithms that will be defining and deciding what actions to take. And so all of a sudden, a government could be alerted that their military has done something in some part of the world that they didn't even imagine or prepare for. So now there goes trade deals, there goes foreign policy, there goes any kind of business and FDI relationship that the country may have been wanting because now machines are are deciding the new relationships between countries. Yeah, I mean, even if you've designed like a perfect algorithm, I guess as as the reality changes on the ground, you could have unpredicted results, like unpredictable results that would require kind of a, a different uh, thinking process You know, and I can see how, how that could happen. It's really crazy. But what about also robots taking over our jobs? I mean, this is basically like the fourth industrial revolution and AI is taking over jobs as we speak all around the world. In China, I know uh, you've mentioned uh, news anchors are, you know, you have robot or AI news anchors. You have AI clinics, so you don't actually have to go to the doctors anymore. You have robot-run factories. Um, there's a figure 51 million jobs in Europe could disappear because of automation. Also, uh, COVID-19 has probably escalated that number. So do you predict that people might eventually revolt against the threat of robots taking over the world, both our jobs and also, you know, this idea as we start talking about this, that killer robots could, you know, basically ruin, <laughs> take over from human beings? <laughs> definitely. I think the automation of jobs is, uh, it's definitely picked up speed in this COVID-19 or post-COVID-19 world, depending on what wave we're in right now at this point i don't think anybody knows so it's definitely picking up speed and the sheer scale of jobs being automated is completely unprecedented and it's not just taking place in china it's taking place in japan it's taking place in the us it's taking place in parts of europe it's taking place in parts of south america all over the world it's it's happening and i believe that in order to ensure that people's quality of life, people's jobs, people's basic lifestyle can be maintained to a certain degree, societies have to be fundamentally redesigned. If you take uh, a country like India right now, right now in India, a hundred, more than a hundred million people are out of work because of the pandemic. If you think about that number, just the sheer scale that a hundred million people in one nation has lost their jobs because of a pandemic that hasn't even been around for six months. And now if you take a look at the capabilities of certain algorithms, if you take a look at the increasing sophistication of industrial robots, and you think about the tens of millions of jobs that could disappear, regardless of geography or culture, 
or time zone, what are people going to do? And I've been in my books, in client engagements and conferences, I've constantly been bringing this up. And I've constantly been warning that when people lose their job, when people lose, lose their livelihood, their behavior is going to change. They, they could become aggressive. There could be new, new political parties that, that are born. There could be revolts and uprisings. You could see who knows what path countries will go on when such a large amount of people lose their jobs. Now, there's two key points here. The first is that there's only two solutions that governments currently have to deal with this. The first is basic income, and the second one is a robot tax. Now, none of these solutions are going to work. And the fact that right now in the middle of a pandemic, governments are already trying to figure out how to stop giving free money because they realize that their debt burden is increasing so fast. And this is just one example of why giving free money in the form of UBI won't work. And as for taxing robots, companies can just move to different geographies where they're not being taxed. So that again is a huge challenge. And the second, the second key point is that when people lose their jobs, in the past it was factory workers or it was certain types of skill sets. But now we're seeing in Japan a creative director in advertising being an AI. Now we're seeing news anchors in China as AI. Now we're seeing in UAE health pods governed by AI that can diagnose illnesses. Now we're seeing facial recognition as essentially the new face of police around the world. And so its skill sets and its intelligence across the spectrum, whether it's blue collar or white collar, that's now at risk of being automated. That's incredible and mind-boggling to think about. I guess we'll see as it as it develops, and it's hard to kind of plan for that and create a framework that would, you know, prevent all those things from happening. Um, but absolutely, yeah. But the biggest issue right now in the world seems to be um, this power struggle that's happening between China and the U.S. Can you give us a brief rundown of what's happening right now between those two countries, like from a global perspective? Absolutely. So. Right now, U.S. and China are engaged in perhaps the biggest fight for geopolitical power since World War II. And some may say that this competition has been at play for many years, but now it's really reached a tipping point. Now it's really in everyone's faces in a way that it wasn't before. At the core of this fight is technology, because technology is now the driving force of geopolitics, whether it's 5G or blockchain or artificial intelligence or even space technologies. It's technology that's now defining the power and influence and footprint that countries have on the world stage. And both governments in Beijing and in Washington, D.C., along with a host of other governments around the world, know this. They're aware that the cards 
have changed, that the new paradigms are emerging. And so now as the U.S. targets Huawei, as the U.S. focuses on 5G, as U.S. limits and restricts the export of AI, as U.S. analyzes foreign investment in its critical uh, critical industry startups, as U.S. thinks about delisting Chinese firms from stock markets, now we're seeing China start to really understand that it has to take things into hyperdrive. And so this Cold War is culminating in, in what you could call a decoupling between U.S. and China. Again, technology at the center. But it's also culminating in what I call deglobalization, that now we're seeing the era of sort of one global empire, one superpower ending. And whether someone replaces that or not is yet to be seen. But I think more than anything, we're going to see multiple countries now fighting for power. So if there was a war, a robot war right now, who do you think would win? It's <laughs> <laughs> a good question. I think that uh, if you look at if you look at the way, it, it, first you have to define a robot, right? So a killer robot is, in my eyes, a robot or an AI that's completely autonomous and is able to make decisions on their own. Right now, the robots that have been deployed by both U.S. China are are robots in the sense that they're unmanned. So U.S. Uh, Pentagon, their R and D lab is called DARPA. And DARPA just handed over a ship to the U.S. Navy called Sea Hunter. And this is a very advanced warship, except it's not armed. It's not armed with missiles or weapons. It's more for reconnaissance and surveillance. And it's operating largely autonomously. Then you have drones like the Reaper or the Predator that the U.S. has. Again, these are robots, but they're unmanned and they're remotely controlled. I think what we're going to see in the next five to 10 years is that this unmanned paradigm is going to be replaced with fully autonomous paradigm. Now, when that happens, you have a handful of countries that dominate, US, China, Israel, UK, and to a lesser extent, Japan and India and Russia. In that world, where militaries are highly autonomous, highly dominated by robots, the question is who can deploy fastest and who can sell fastest? And this gets into sort of the intricacies of my book, which is, you know, in the past, it, we looked to companies like Lockheed Martin or Raytheon to see where military was being exported to. But now, in the age of killer robots, technology companies could be the next defense companies. Companies like Google, who already have done some work with the Pentagon, could be developing the brains for these autonomous weapons. So now that's another avenue that could increase how fast killer robots move around the world. So it's a very difficult, but a very important question to answer. So what about the Middle East? 
you call yourself a futurist, which kind of makes you like, a, I guess, a kind of data-driven fortune teller for the modern world. <laughs> <laughs> they call it a basara in Arabic, by the way, just FYI. Okay. So how do you think um, this will affect the Middle East and its uh, individual countries? Well, Middle East is in a very opportunistic, but also a very challenging situation. You know, if if we were talking about oil or natural gas, the traditional variables of geopolitics, then Middle East would be discussed nonstop. But now geopolitics is being driven by AI and 5G and all of these technologies that we hear about almost every day in the news. And this this is putting the Middle East, in my eyes, at a crossroads. And it's putting the Middle East in a crossroads for, for several, regions, uh, several reasons. The first is that Middle Eastern countries are going to have to pick a side. Uh, we just talked about the U.S.-China Cold War, this decoupling, this new alternative systems that are emerging in every domain of, of the world. Middle Eastern nations, regardless of their size economically, are going to have to decide whose technology they want to use, whose protocols and standards they want to use. Uh, if you take artificial intelligence, for example, countries like UAE have literally begun the process of redesigning their economies to make them algorithmic economies. Now, Whose AI is UAE going to use? Is it going to be American AI? Is it going to be Chinese AI? Is it going to be a different country's AI? What are they using Because right now? Sorry to interrupt. Sure. I think they're using they're using mainly Western AI in in the business and commercial spheres. But it's very interesting. In the media sphere, it's Chinese AI. And in the consumer sphere, it's both. Because consumer sphere is defined by the smartphones that somebody has. It's defined by their lifestyle. So it's both. You could even say TikTok right now is a type of Chinese AI. But then this leads to the third possibility. Yesterday, nations were defined by their geography. Because if you have the resources, you had what I call the geographic luck of the draw. Now with technology, you don't dig up technology from the ground. You develop it. So if you put yourself in the shoes of UAE or Saudi Arabia or Lebanon or Jordan, why do they need to use anyone else's AI? Why can't they develop their own? That's the first big question in front of these, these countries. The second big question is, when in the past, nations across the world, but especially in the Middle East, have been defined by their immediate circumstances. So fresh water, energy, um, defense, these have really defined how Middle Eastern nations operate, how they think, who they align with, their foreign policy, geopolitics, all of it. Now, when nations can solve those problems on their own, will they still operate the same way? So an example of that could be Neom, right? The huge mega city that Saudi Arabia is building, $500 billion, 33 times the size of New York City. It'll span Egypt and Jordan, completely unprecedented and unrivaled. Now, 
Saudi Arabia is building Neom. Why? Because they want to go beyond energy. And Neom, if it takes off, could create new local industries for Saudi Arabia around emerging technologies. Could this then lead to Saudi Arabia perhaps developing its own defense industry, perhaps developing its own renewable energy industry, perhaps developing its own industries around gene editing and food security and biotechnology? Because if it does, then it means that Riyadh will no longer be dependent on foreign nations the way it once was. And that could fundamentally reset the foreign policy of countries. Yeah, well, actually, I was going to ask you about that because uh, data and technology is kind of the new oil, right? I mean, this is something that people are kind of using as an analogy and you've used it in your books. If so, where does that leave a country like Saudi Arabia? And is it too late for them to play catch up? I mean, the, you know, the other countries that you list are so far ahead in terms of developing their own uh, technology. It would be very hard, it would seem, for a country to come in and develop their own stuff from scratch, Or even, you know, it's hard to build upon something that doesn't that you haven't created yourself. Um, so is that really viable as oil probably, you know, in the future becomes almost obsolete, possibly? Do you foresee that as a possibility? I believe that in geopolitics of technology or next geopolitics, as I call it, any country can create a new destiny for themselves. I truly believe that at the, at the core of what makes geopolitics of technology different than previous waves of geopolitics, is that nations are no longer defined by their past or their history or their geography. They can reset and recreate. And as much as geopolitics of technology has begun, and as much as so many transformations have already taken place, it's just begun. It's not in its middle phase or late phase Not that this is ever going to end. So whether it's Saudi Arabia, whether it's Lebanon, whether it's Qatar, whether it's Egypt, whoever whoever is thinking about this has the ability to invest, has the ability to create some kind of role for itself. Now, going to data, a key question in front of every country, especially Middle Eastern countries, is whose standards and protocols are they going to follow? Again, this goes back to picking a side. As far as data goes, every nation right now is building rules around data. India, for example, is doing data localization. EU has created perhaps the most stringent and comprehensive AI regulatory framework in the world. Now, Middle Eastern countries are going to be faced with this question. Well, how will they approach data. Now, this is two-step. First, it's obviously regulating data in terms of how it's collected, where it's stored, what kind of information can companies collect on people, et cetera, et cetera. But then it's also what does data enable, right? So data is the food for AI. It's what makes AI work. It's what makes algorithms smarter, except It's institutions like UN, it's, it's countries like China that are building the standards and rules for how AI can be used. So this is almost like a long tail. A country like Saudi Arabia or UAE may want to redesign their economy around AI. 
But what they can do with AI is being defined and decided by somebody, somebody else. But then it leads to another challenge. Should these countries continue to abide by the so-called global system? What's to stop any country in the Middle East from saying, no, I'm not going to use your rules or your standards. I'm going to develop my own. So you can see here that there is a lot of moving pieces. And ultimately, it means geopolitics will become more chaotic and more volatile than it's ever been. Yeah, so what do you know about the UAE's Ministry of AI? They're obviously trying to do what you're talking about, oversee technology, create a proper framework for how it should be used across that country. Um, what do you know about it? And should every country have one of those? I think every country should have a ministry of the future. It's something that I've been talking about for some time, that governments should create a new ga a cabinet position and have Uh, a minister of the future there, and I can get to why in a second. UAE has had their Ministry of AI for a few years now, and when it launched, it was a really big deal because it showed how switched on um, the leadership in UAE was and still is. But right now is the big test for that Ministry of AI. Right now in this, in this era where the pandemic has changed so much, where economies need new lifelines to grow, the Ministry of AI now has to go beyond simply trying to attract startups or trying to build talent, i.e. through their AI university. Uh, now is the time to really test whether Ministry of AI has what it takes to lead the UAE forward. And an example of what I mean is perhaps UAE can build an AI healthcare system. Right now, South Korea, it's, it's quite fascinating. One of South Korea's biggest exports is smart cities. The entire platform for a smart city, South Korea is exporting around the world. So in, a sim in the same sense, right now, UAE could build an AI healthcare platform that can diagnose conditions, perhaps even propose medicines and start exporting that. That's an example of true leadership in this in this age of AI, in this age of geopolitics of technology. Do you worry that all this data, all this technology is taking away from our uh, freedom as human beings and from our power as individuals as, you know, we become less and less relevant um, in every part of, you know, our lives? Definitely. In, you know, The, the key paradigm shift here is that before you and I may have been worried about, you know, is somebody watching our internet uh, browsing habits? Is somebody reading our emails? Is somebody monitoring our phone calls? But we weren't defined by that. If if somebody read our emails, we that didn't define, you know, whether we could go and get a loan from the bank. Now, this is shifting. Now, our data is increasingly going to define what we can do. And that is a huge transformation in, in the world, in the way people live. And this is a transformation that isn't just limited to countries like China. It's going to happen in democracies, too. And when you look at 
in UK, they've more than 50 towns have created something called citizen scores. That these are scores that define citizens based on their behavior and activity and daily life. If you look at even companies in Japan, one of the most popular social media companies is called Line, and they've launched something called Line Score. And this gives people a score based on their activity in the different line, um, different line apps. Line has several different apps. And then what people are doing in those apps defines their score. And their score defines how much credit they can get from line credit, their financial win. So you can already see now that people who may be doing things the same way they were five years ago are now going to be defined by their behavior. And this is going to lead to a complete breakdown in privacy, in rights and freedoms. People are going to come out and say, what's going on here? How do we ensure that our privacy, our freedoms are intact in the face of technology that could be seen as becoming more and more intrusive. And there's no right answer because in the context of governments and policymakers, if you only protect civil liberties completely, then you stifle innovation. But if you give technology companies free reign, then you put at risk your entire population and society and democratic values. So there has to be a middle ground, and that middle ground is yet to materialize. In your opinion, I mean, I believe in the goodness of most people and all this technology that's being developed is probably, you know, engineers that are excited about what they're doing. But do you think there are now nefarious forces behind all these big companies um, that are being, you know, run by some of the world's most powerful people without naming any names? Um, in your opinion, since you dive into this like on a daily basis, Not to be a conspiracy theorist, but is there some sense of like a Machiavellian game going on where it's really a power grab at, at any cost? I haven't seen that myself. What I, what I am seeing, though, is that um, there are challenges emerging that are, have to be taken more seriously. So I'll give you an example of what I mean. Right now, a big challenge is AI bias, right? Now... AI bias is essentially algorithms behaving in ways that are unfair and, and, and put certain people at a disadvantage. Uh, an example is a, a beauty contest that was held a few years ago where an algorithm was the judge. And so people from around the world put in pictures, sent pictures, and all the contestants were predominantly Caucasian. All the, all the winners were predominantly Caucasian. And so people started asking, well, what's going on here? And when researchers looked into it, the algorithm had learned the concept of beauty by going on the internet. And when you search, you know, beautiful people in Google, uh, it's predominantly Caucasian people that come up in, in, in the first results. So, or take a look at Uber and Lyft. It just came out a few, a week or two ago that people that are going to non-white neighborhoods are being charged more for their trips. And this is 
a huge challenge because it it only puts the onus on two people, engineers who are building these algorithms or people themselves, because engineers who are building it, one could argue that they're inputting their own biases, their own prejudices, perhaps knowingly or unknowingly. But if that's not the case, then these algorithms are learning from society. They're learning from us as people. They're learning from our prejudices, our behavior, our habits. And that puts the onus on us. And it begs the question, how do you feed an algorithm data that is quote unquote clean, that doesn't have bias? And is that even possible? And if you think about all the places where algorithms are going to be, from hiring to policing to credit and finance to healthcare, and then you apply this risk of bias, all of a sudden you have huge disinfringement going on, huge disadvantage going on, and people are going to start calling out these technology companies and governments and saying, what's going on here? What is this? Wow. It's fascinating stuff to think about, really. Um, doesn't your last name, Prakash, mean light in Sanskrit? Something like that? Uh, it, it, it might. You probably know more, more than I Googled me about it. that. <laughs> I thought it's it was... a very popular name in India, Prakash. Well, let me know if that's true, because I thought okay. that if so, it's kind of cool, because we need you to shed some light on all of this. Most people don't understand uh, what the heck you. is going on. You know, it's uh, such a... a, a a tangled web of data and technology that's becoming so complex and massive all around the world. So um, it's really nice to uh, have someone that's paying close attention and they can explain it in such a clear, um, easy to understand way. Thank you. Thank you. But, you know, one thing that makes this era that we're entering, era of geopolitics, so different is that Before geopolitics was really about a handful of governments, uh, investment banks, resource companies, and a handful of regions. Now, and that meant that, you know, the average person wasn't really affected by geopolitics. Now, we all are. Now, even an app like TikTok is considered geopolitical. Now, data, who has the data, where is the data going is considered geopolitical. Now, when we travel, we might have to, uh, our faces might be scanned by facial recognition software coming from another country. So now everybody, everywhere, regardless of their profession, their geography, their gender, their age, anything is going to be defined by this new world. And so this makes this new era of geopolitics far more personal and far more important than ever before. Yeah, and TikTok is a whole other story, a whole other topic that yeah. we could talk about. <laughs> and they're kind of coming in strong right now in the Middle East. Um, we actually had a guest uh, from there a few weeks ago. There's so much to talk about and so little time, but it's been really great having you. I hope you come again uh, soon. Absolutely, Nadia. Thank you so much for having me on. It was great fun. And tell us uh, where your new book is uh, available. Absolutely. You can order it on Amazon worldwide, and it's available right now. Killer Robots. The Age of Killer Robots, correct. The Age of Killer Robots. Food for thought <laughs> tonight as we go to sleep and have nightmares. <laughs> <laughs> 
That's it. Thanks for listening, and be sure to check us out on social media. If you liked this episode, you'll love TMR's laptop bags and unique bracelets and necklaces, all made for people like you in Beirut, Lebanon. You can see them on our website, themensroom.show, and you can buy them on a growing list of websites, including maisonorient.com, which will ship it to you for free wherever you happen to be in the world. See you next time.